Hebrews, verse by verse, the new and living way. This is part 52, 52 weeks. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Here's the question that I turned into the title. How holy do you have to be to get into the kingdom? How holy do you have to be to get into the kingdom? Hebrews 12, starting at verse 12. Therefore, we'll talk about that, the connector. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, getting worse, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Is this not working? it on now strive for peace with everyone here's where we are right there and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord see to it that no one fails to obtain this is interesting isn't it fails to obtain the grace of God I thought grace is just freely given amazing grace how sweet the sound it's just he just gives us grace, not by works, by grace. He just gives it. What is this fails to obtain the grace of God? That no root of bitterness springs up and, and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. So, defiled holiness. We're meant to see a contrast there. That no one is sexually immoral... Or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for, for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent. That's an interesting phrase. Found no chance to repent. Didn't repent, but he did shed a lot of tears. Saw it with tears. So much, Lord, to think about in this passage, the way your Holy Spirit through this writer constructs. We just sang great words, show me the truth revealed within your word. And so come and help us to find the truth that will feed our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. The issue we want to get to eventually today is boiled down pretty simply in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and strive, the, the verb is repeated, it's implied in both. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. These two things Christians must strive after. And at once, you kind of sense the issue as it relates to this subject of holiness and grace, works and faith, 
What is this striving after personal holiness? And how does that relate to the imputed righteousness of Christ? The first part of verse 15, it just raises that kind of question. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Here's what we all know. We all know there are verses that make holiness look easy. And there are verses that make holiness look hard. So which are we going to use? I prefer the easy ones. How do these relate to each other? How are we to map our way through verses like these? Ephesians, you know these words. And then Philippians. For, for by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul, Philippians 3.9, And be found of him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. We could all go home happy. And then there are other verses from God's word. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He writes to the church. Do not be deceived. What kind of deception would he be writing to Christians about? I'll tell you the kind I think he's writing about. He doesn't say. He writes to this church and he tells them unrighteous people won't inherit the kingdom of God. So don't be deceived about this. The deception would be, well, if, if it's not of works... Right, and it's all by grace, then, then it really can't matter that much how well I perform because it's not based on works. And so Paul feels he has this need to say, don't, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, need to think about that one a lot in the church today. Nor revilers, nor swindlers will, will inherit the kingdom of God. They won't get in, he says. There's other ones. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy... ...to the one who has shown no mercy... Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed. What, what good is that? This question, it's a rhetorical question. What's the answer supposed to be? No. Second Peter 3, 11 to 14. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved when Jesus comes again. We sang about it in that Revelation course. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of, of holiness and godliness? Waiting for, hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. 
But according to his promise, we are now waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent. Doesn't sound like just a gift, does it? Like, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. All right. I think you can probably see my point in these four passages. Two, grace. It's not works. It's a gift. It's free. The last two, be diligent. Work hard. Holiness. What kind of people should you be? These people who do these things won't inherit the kingdom of God. And so the tension in verse 14 of today's Hebrews text... It it isn't just an isolated one. It's carried on throughout the entire New Testament. That's what I was trying to show you. Let's get into the text. Point number one. A repentant, step-by-step walking in the truth we know is the surest way to remain in the healing power of grace. 12, 12 and 13. Therefore... And there's two pictures here. This is the first one. Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. I say that's the first picture. And then make straight paths for your feet. I think that's the second picture. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be be healed. Connectors, I've said it before. Connectors are the important words in a biblical text. So this word, therefore, connects these verses in the mind of the writer, and he hopes in the reader, to the exhortation in verse 11 regarding the kind of cultural pressure and hostility these Hebrew believers were facing in their commitment to Christ. Verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But but later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay, that's what he has just been saying. There are times when, if no one's told you this, let me tell you it this morning. There are countless times when faith in Jesus Christ makes life incredibly harder for you in this world. If you were thinking coming to Jesus was going to take all your problems away, somebody deceived you. Your biggest problems, your sin and your mortality, have been graciously permanently solved. Verse 11 says that faithfully following Jesus in a world like ours can seem, here's the words he uses, painful rather than pleasant. Verse 11. See those two words? But then he says those painful times, they can still be fruitful. They can still be productive. They're times, verse 11 again, they're times of training, he says. God's trying to grow a, quote, peaceable fruit of righteousness in my heart. These are times, chapter 12, verse 6, we looked at this last week, when God is receiving us, not abandoning us. Okay, so now we come to our text. Therefore, he says, 
So in view of this reminder that even in these times where you're persecuted, you feel the loneliness, you feel the rejection, you feel the mocking in that university class, that college class, you're the only Christian at work, you're married to an unsafe spouse, there's all sorts of situations that have become incredibly difficult, hard, complicated, but don't forget, God is trying to train and produce something in you through those difficult times. And then he goes, so, or therefore, with me, therefore, Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. I said I think our writer makes this slight distinction. I showed it here. Between the kind of thoughts we allow to form in our minds, manifested in in this stooped posture and droop... You can see the discouragement. You can see the fatigue. There's a loneliness in cultural rejection. Self-pity can flood a clear understanding of God's training program. Thoughts of quitting, or if not quitting, at least thoughts of compromising. Take the pressure off. Keep my friends. All those things can enter and flitter around in our heads and then our writer talks about the feet and the, the path we choose with our feet. I think the reason he does that is he knows it's never easy to hold, it's never easy to hold the power of discouraging thoughts at bay. I mean, inward attitudes, boy, they have enormous influence over actions, don't they? And so our writer says, make straight paths for your feet. When you're feeling this way, make straight paths for your feet, 13. What he's doing is he's calling to mind, he's already referred to Proverbs once, and he's referring them back to an idea like this. Ponder the path of your feet. Is this still on? Okay. Ponder the path of your feet. You can't control all the flood of feelings and emotions. You can't always change your circumstances. This is the part you can affect. And then all your ways will be sure. This gets real close to us, church. I mean, our writer knows what he's doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There is great encouragement in this picture as he tells these culturally persecuted Christians to make straight paths for their feet. The emphasis, you can see it, it's on, it's on the, the path of following the Lord. You know what you do with your feet? This is what you do with your feet. Right? You see somebody so that doesn't have, we take it for granted, don't we? You see somebody that doesn't have mobility? Isn't it great to do this with your feet? That's what our feet are for. They're, your feet are the means of traveling. Make straight paths for your feet. So the idea here is, it's a profound one. It, it, what you have to focus on is just the next step. The next step you take is your immediate focus for obedience and and 
concentration. This isn't earning your salvation by merit. It's, it's planting your feet in the strengthening pathway of divine grace. Divine inward grace makes us strategic in where we place our feet in a godless culture. It makes us think about the next step. Take these words home with you from church today. Here's what I want to tell you. When you feel discouraged, and you will, when you feel rejected, and you will, not here on Sunday, but out there, when you feel mocked, you may well come to seasons where you feel like packing it all in. You may well be described as having this, hands. This is our text's picture of inward weariness. And, and, and here's, here's the point. What you do next matters. The way you start to think matters. You, you may not think you have strength for the whole journey. I get it. But our writer isn't talking about the whole journey. Our writer wants you and me to honor Jesus with the next step. Do you see it? Just that step. There are no escalators. You know that thing at the airport? You hop on that thing and, and, and you, it just sails you along. And then you get someone that doesn't understand. You're supposed to keep walking when you're on that thing. Well, there are no movators. There's none of those in the Christian walk. You can always honor Jesus with just the next step. I'm sure you still have a long way to go in your Christian walk. So do I. And I'm sure you're not yet perfectly mature in Christ, and nor am I. And you may stumble on the pathway, so do I, but don't leave the path. God is a wonderful God of just the next step. You may fall on the path, but stay on the path. This is not just a neat little motivational locker room talk I'm giving you. You can see this principle in the New Testament. You can see it in the way Paul addressed Peter, if you look for it. Remember the situation in Galatia, where Peter was committed to the gospel and the freedom of Gentiles to come to Christ just like Jews. But then when the Jewish leaders came, Peter didn't want to be associated with the Gentiles and he went back to just the Jewish association. Paul sees this and he confronts Peter in front of everybody. That's awkward. And here's what he says, Galatians 2.14. But when I saw their conduct was, look, see that? We're talking about your feet, right? When I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, that's an important phrase. If you, though, a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Don't miss those little words. Not in step with the truth. 
Paul is describing Peter's steps. Peter goofs here. Peter falls, but, but Peter listens to Paul. It's a wonderful thing about Peter. He's impulsive, can be a bit reckless, but you can tell him he's wrong. He weeps. It's a beautiful trait. He falls, but he, but he listens to Paul, even in the face of the embarrassment of being scolded in front of all the other believers. Peter doesn't want this mistake to be fatal. He knows how to be humble. He knows how to be repentant. He is staying on that straight path for his feet. He cares about that more than his own glory or his own reputation. Remember that account of Peter. He wasn't in step with the truth, but he stayed on the right path. It would have been easy for Peter to grow a bit bitter. Paul, okay, you got a problem. Take me aside. We'll go to Starbucks, a couple of lattes, and we'll talk about it. Do you, do you have to bark at me in front of all these people? No mention that Peter ever thought that. He could have been defensive. He could have, he could have grown bitter. could have kept a grudge. Being corrected for a misstep. Make straight paths for your feet. Being corrected for a misstep, especially if you're a spiritual leader. Boy, it's not a painless process. Let me, just, let me just give you this reminder. Mishandling correction is the surest way Christians depart from the path of truth. Mishandling correction. I've seen it over and over again. When a, when a Christian replies with, who are you to judge me? You know spiritual dementia is in its final stages in that person. The next step mattered for these persecuted Hebrew Christians that our writer addresses. The next step mattered in the correction for Peter. And the next step in the face of fear, discouragement, even failure, the next step matters for you. It matters for me. This isn't just a sermon truth. This needs constant replay in our minds. We never learn this just once. And here's the positive side. Every small, single step of loyalty to Jesus carries more potential, more joyful potential for totally remaking your life than you ever see in just that one little step of obedience. When the next step of loyalty to Christ looks incredibly insignificant compared to all the obstacles you face... Remember the liberating power of just the next step in honoring Jesus. Remember just the next step in demonstrating loyalty to Jesus. Small steps of faithfulness only seem small to us. So this text just brims with encouragement. When our, our repentance, our obedience, it seems small in comparison to those obstacles in our way, 
At times our problems seem so great and the prescribed biblical remedies seem almost insignificant. But small steps in faithfulness have incredible power through the grace of God to actually, 12.13, heal what has been broken. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but be healed. That's what the next step brings. Point number two. Authentic discipleship faces the pressures of a hostile culture by looking forward to the fulfilled promise of seeing the Lord. It's in 1214. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which, so that refers to this, without which no one will see the Lord. We need to understand that phrase, without which no one will see the Lord. It has to have a very particular kind of meaning because we're plainly told in Scripture that everyone's going to see the Lord when he comes. Behold, he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So, even people who don't want to see Jesus are going to see him. Everybody's going to see Jesus. So clearly this can't be the kind of seeing that's being described in our Hebrews text. Our writer in Hebrews is describing that happy, unashamed, joyous seeing of the Lord. The goal of our union with Christ, the the fulfillment of every kingdom promise in Christ. But remember the context of these words. These were deeply persecuted believers. Chapter 10, I won't go over it every week, but it talks about the kind of persecution they received. They've been kicked out of their homes. They've been imprisoned. It says that right in the text. Their families have turned against them. The Jewish community wanted anything to do with them. So they're discouraged. They're weary, drooping hands. Some are on the edge of turning back from their new faith in Christ due to the intense pressure from the culture around them. This is the context for this twofold plea in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for holiness before the Lord. So first, striving for peace with all men. I think the particular emphasis is probably the people who were treating them so harshly. They're they're not to respond in kind. They were to be the kind of shining lights that Jesus described. I don't have time for this, but the kind of shining lights Jesus described in, in Matthew 5, 11 to 16, where right before this he says, pray for those who persecute you. You bless them, you pray for them. Then he says, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you persecute you utter all kinds of evil against you falsely if what they say is true that's a different issue 
but falsely slandering you on my account because of your commitment to Jesus. That's the Hebrews situation. Everything that was coming at them was because of their devotion to Christ. Rejoice. Be glad. Great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is how you read now. It's in the context of praying for those who persecute us, blessing them, not responding in kind. It's in that context that we have these familiar words. You're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. So salt of the earth, light of the world. Whenever you hear sermons or teachings or those sayings, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. From this moment on, make sure the first thing that comes to your mind is, it's how you respond to persecution. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's where, that's where the light shines because most people don't respond kindly to being slandered and persecuted. Am I right? So they look at you and they go, wait a minute. This is totally different. Right? It's like turning on a light switch. It's like having something flavorless and putting seasoning on it. 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works. What kind of good works are they talking about? Well, it's talking about blessing and praying for those who persecute you. So, strive for peace with all men. Probably that's what he's thinking about. But in all of this non-retaliation, and this is the important point, these Hebrew Christians were still to remain uncompromised in their holiness. The church has, has been struggling with this for years. There was to be no participation in the values of that fallen culture. They were to place their feet in the path of loyalty to Jesus as those who were longing to see him when he returned. So, so love for the culture was never to turn into likeness to the culture. Love for the culture was never to turn into likeness to the culture. Point number three. What happens when this long-term view of seeing the Lord is forgotten? 15 through 17. We're almost done. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it, many become defiled. That, that no one is sexually immoral. This is strange. Because, because our writer doesn't point to any sexual immorality in Esau at all. I mean, it's, he throws those words in there. But they're not attached to Esau in any way. There's no example of sexual immorality that he cites. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy. So, holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. That's what we're talking about. 
unholy like Esau, what did he do? Well, he sold his birthright for, I want to talk about that, a single meal. For you know that afterwards, that's after he sold his birthright, he desired to inherit the blessing. He, he was rejected. Doesn't sound happy, does it? He was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I want to talk about Esau for a minute. Esau is put forward. So remember, here's our writer writing to these persecuted Hebrew Christians, telling them to take a long view. Jesus is coming. Be salt and light. Peace with all men. Stay holy. Stay holy. Look forward. Take a long view. Remember the Lord is coming. Live in the light of that. And to tie up this sermon, he says, think about Esau. Esau is the classic example of the person who had an immediate need that blinded him to long-term priorities, right? That's that's what you think of when you think of Esau. Even though there's no mention of sexual immorality that's tied to Esau, I believe our writer throws it in because nothing, nothing better illustrates temporary insanity to long-term consequences than sexual immorality. We can find ourselves in situations. Here's why Esau's in here. You, you, this week. You can find yourself in situations that feel like they require a certain course of action. Okay? Present instincts can make a long-term loyalty to Jesus feel unreasonable. I think that's an important sentence. Present instincts can make a long-term loyalty to Jesus feel unreasonable. Everybody else is going down this road. (laughs) They're not being turned into pillars of salt. One day you're going to be in this situation. Believe me, one day you're going to be in a situation where you think this situation, I know, I know this might not be quite down the dotted line, but I I don't know what to do. It requires this. Included in Esau's birthright, we get this mixed up, I think. Included in, it's not just an inheritance, like he was going to get a bunch of land and cattle and money. It's not that. The birthright was was the genetic passing on of the reality of the covenant handed down through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, centering on the line through which redemption would one day come and God was going to bless the nations. The birthright. Esau despises everything that he had learned about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And in these verses, our writer is extremely careful 
to make his point as bluntly as possible. Esau did all of this for 16 for a single meal. We're meant to feel the unreasonableness of it. Not just for food in general, because you, well, you need food to live. Nobody needs a single meal. How long does it take you to eat lunch? How long? 20 minutes? We're made to see, we're made to see the stupidity of what Esau is doing. How, how, how can anybody be that blind? We're, we're being forced to calculate the difference it takes to eat lunch and the vast immeasurable stretch of eternity. The pressures of any challenging moment have enormous deceptive power. It is never a simple achievement to focus on seeing the Lord. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. To, to live every moment of the day thinking about seeing the Lord. Seeing the Lord. You will see the Lord. You will stand before the Lord. The Apostle Peter, he calls the church, calls the church to think about these things. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is Here it is. That's Esau, right? Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So so terrible things happen when professing believers forget about seeing the Lord. Even if they just forget momentarily. People, People tune into internet porn when they forget about seeing the Lord. People sell spiritual disciplines for money when they forget about seeing the Lord. People get their bodies hooked up to addictions when they forget about seeing the Lord. People have inappropriate sexual relationships when they forget about seeing the Lord. People neglect their marriages when they forget about seeing the Lord. People stay home from church when they forget about seeing the Lord. People do all sorts of self-destructive things no less insane than Esau's swap for one meal. They do it all the time. I see it. And here's the strange thing. Now I'm done in two minutes. But don't time me. Here's the strange thing as I wrap up. I've witnessed it a few times myself. Usually... How can I say it? Usually when people have long departed from loyalty to Christ, they still want his blessing on their lives. Do you see this in verse 17? For you know that afterward, after what? Well, this is after lunch. 
He desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected. Found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Just take note, there's much in that verse. We might look at it next week more. Just look at that time word, afterward. It means after he had traded away his birthright. Here's Esau, our writer. Remember, our writer is writing to New Testament Christians. He's writing to people like us, and he's talking about Esau. And here's why. Esau wants to make decisions on his own selfish terms and then come after. (laughs) I love you, Lord. And he was, what's the word? Rejected. He doesn't see any connection in a hostile culture between loyalty to Christ, talking about a writer of Hebrews as he writes to these Christians, the connection between loyalty to Christ and the blessing of God. Esau, he still thinks he's entitled. That's the important word, entitled. It's mine. My parents are Baptist. I was a member in the Presbyterian church. I sing in the choir. I'm a pastor. And the Holy Spirit, unlike modern day church, I guess, the Holy Spirit didn't choose to end this tragic account of Esau with a lovely poetic benediction. It's a pretty blunt ending. Esau placed himself outside the path of divine grace. And and God so wants this warning to stand starkly in our minds for a while. Time, Time your lunch today. When you start to eat. Time it. Because anytime you compromise loyalty to Jesus for anything else, it's just as foolish and just as damning as Esau. And all the people said, let's pray.